0: theatrical shenanigans presents the panel presents with Melissa Musgrave
1: John Busser
0: Carolyn Gage Kate Lindsay hello there and welcome to our fifth episode of the panel presents as always I am your host Rachel Finley williams and I hope you're well out there wherever you're listening and thank you for joining us For those who have not listened before, in this show we gather together once a month to have a chat about important issues related to theatre. I say we because in this episode, like all the others, I have four fabulous panellists with me because otherwise I'd just be very lonely. My first panellist is well known to the world of theatrical shenanigans, having been a featured playwright in season one and then a guest in season two. Not only has he been acting in theatre in the Cleveland area of the USA for 25 years, but he is an incredible graphic artist and playwright of 95 short plays and monologues that have had countless productions. I am thrilled to have him back as a panellist. Welcome, John Busser.
1: Welcome. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for having me. I'll try not to trip on the microphone.
0: (laughs) My second panellist hails from my side of the pond in Salford in the northwest of England and comes with a list of titles that include theatrical compare, performer, disability and mental health awareness acceptance ambassador, and equal rights activist. I think I need a breath after all that. He loves anything from stand up comedy to new works, from plays to musicals, and he says he can talk about theatre all day. So it's a good job he's here. Welcome, Jake Lindsay. Hey. <laughs> Continuing my journey around the world, my third panellist joins us all the way from Sydney, Australia, so we are definitely well-traveled today. She's been involved in community theatre for over 20 years and created Camden Musical Society in 2019. More recently, she's also started working at her local community radio station, 100.3 FM, where she hosts musical theatre hours. So it seems this could be a great place for her. Welcome, Melissa Musgrave. Thank you for having me. I
2: can't wait to have a chat with you all.
0: (laughs) And last but certainly not least, we have our second panellist from the USA, making up our fourth. She is a playwright, performer and activist, as well as being the author of an incredible 12 books and more than 88 plays. If all of that wasn't enough, she's also the winner of numerous awards and tours her own shows, offering lectures and workshops on lesbian culture and history. So I'm thrilled she could take the time out of a very busy schedule to join us. Welcome, Carolyn Gage. (laughs) okay well we'll move straight on with the first question which is for all of you uh name one person famous or not dead or alive that you believe most influenced your decision to get involved in the arts world and we'll start with melissa
2: i'll come back to my top one which was olivia newton john um she's well we claim her as an aussie and she was in musical um the musical grace which mm. was very very influential for me i saw it at the movie theaters when it was first out and has definitely um influenced my interest along the way
0: jake what about you
3: i would say my two older sisters uh, rachel and hannah brown because they did uh, various shows at high school at college so it's essentially family who have got me into the arts and i've loved it ever since
4: Carolyn. Uh, It was a woman named Diana Bellamy, and she was directing me. And I was supposed to play Juliet, and I just did not feel like a little ingenue at all. So I was doing it incredibly badly. And I remember at the back of the theater, she just yelled. She like bellowed. She said, Carolyn, you can play Juliet. And it was just one of those moments. It just went all through my body. Having a good teacher. Well, yeah, she was it for
0: me. And finally, John.
1: Um, Well, since before, well before I got involved in theater, uh, I have been drawing ever since I was a little kid. And the two people that influenced me the most, uh, because I'm also a huge comic book collector, are uh the two people are stan lee who was a writer and john ramita who was the artist on the amazing spider-man which was my favorite book as a kid and i would copy over and over the drawings that john ramita did and i would attempt to write things the way stan lee did and these two gentlemen who i've never met uh are the two probably biggest influences on me being anywhere involved in the arts at all.
0: Okay, uh, so move on. Uh, Carolyn, with more and more productions encouraging diversity in plays performed and theatrical organizations themselves, how far do you think the arts world has come in that regard? And do you think more change is afoot? I think there's been a lot of change and
4: perhaps more awareness than actual change. My work is really focused on um, writing the plays that would have really saved my life if I'd seen them as a child. I put uh, survivors of sexual abuse, especially child sexual abuse front and center in a lot of my work, as well as gender non-conforming women, especially lesbians. And these are two of the most profoundly censored archetypes in theater. And I don't see that changing at all. I really don't. In fact, when I started working 40 years ago, there were maybe a dozen or more lesbian theaters in the U.S. Today, I only know of one. And the reason for that is, and I'm going to read a quotation here, women lose a lot of social and cultural currency by being sexually uninterested and unavailable to men. Using the word queer keeps that possibility intact. So everything is queer, and that usually means it's Mm -hmm. not inclusive of lesbians. Um, And I think when I I look at that situation, I feel like the root of it is kind of connected to the sexual abuse issue. Specifically, one out of three girls under the age of 18 are sexually abused. 97% of rapists never spend a day in prison. And you only need to terrorize 15% of a population in order to colonize them. So when you consider the overkill terrorizing of females, um, you can see the size of the problem. So for me, I see the most hopeful thing as the Me Too movement, which is starting to clear out these um, these perpetrators who have been heads of studios, heads of theater. I'm sure we've read about the theaters around the country who've been turned upside down because of the stories of sexual abuse. Um, and I feel like uh, if that changes the conversation, if we start to see representation, accurate, non-pathetic um, representation of survivors, of, of the culture of survivors, we have a culture. If that begins to make its way onto stage, I see a great hope for lesbian theater
0: I think the the world of theatre has diversified in the sense that you get um, dedicated uh, opportunities now that are entirely uh, set aside for uh, individual genders, individual race, individual sexuality. And I think that the reason for that is because, as you said, it's been heavily underrepresented before. So now someone's decided, okay, we need to give it um a platform we need to give it the chance to show what it's about and and potentially thrive
4: i think that's a start and i hear what you're saying but i do feel sometimes those things first off they're not making box office they're dedicated yes that's a plus but do they do they stand on their own would they make it in the open market and that's what we have to do is you know be um be able to compete, be desired. People need to want to see these
0: narratives and not just check a box. This is the thing of it is that other narratives can be left by the wayside. And it has it has happened before. I say, I, you can't throw a rock over here without hitting a theater doing an Agatha Christie. And yet there are certain plays that I know that I have read that are incredibly powerful that horrifyingly and annoyingly may, will never see the light of day just say about that
2: particular topic um i think there is a need for all these stories to be out there and that diversity culture is uplifted in the arts we do have that we tend the arts tends to lead the way um in the space i know it doesn't cover off on everyone and there's still a long way to go but you know, you do have that opportunity, I mean, there is that opportunity at times to
0: put it out there. That's just my couple
2: of thoughts on that.
0: But then you also have platforms like New Play Exchange, which allows for playwrights just to have their work out there. And you do discover um, that there is a lot more I suppose there's been a lot more diversity in the world of imagination than there is actually physically on the stage. But at least you as an individual get the experience of knowing and reading about different stories and about, as you say, about subjects that a live audience would struggle to look at. Because there are certain subjects where people just go, Oh, I don't want to see a play about that because that's difficult or that's hard. And sometimes you can think yeah in the mainstream entertainment industry okay you can think that way but at the same time should we really be shying away from everything because it's hard to look at
2: not at all no i
0: think it's definitely an an opportunity to put a a
2: spotlight on stuff but it's about getting the people to sit there and listen to it Mm -hmm. and if they don't want to how do you make it palatable for them to pick things out of it and then question it later
4: I think we have to be kind on ourselves. I think there's limits, Hmm. and I think that my experience is that lesbianism, if the butler's a lesbian, there's a bunch of people that just will not go see the play, period, Uh, and there's nothing you can do with that.
1: I noticed years ago, because I've been involved with a, a, a play reading group for a number of years now, and I noticed that when the and and th- this was the the type of uh, organization that people would bring scripts to be read and we would just pull readers right out of the audience um and do a cold read mm-hmm. but what i noticed is years ago there was a preponderance of scripts that would be like uh eight roles for men and one for a woman mm-hmm. or all men or there would be uh, a woman, but she was always the voice of reason or the ingenue. She was never the instigator of of the plot. It was always somebody to refer to to get a a, a point of view. And some people said, "Well, of course she's the smart one. She helps out." But that wasn't the point. I, I think I think that some of these playwrights were missing the point that. The women's roles were never as interesting because they were basically the the voice of reason. They were the ones who sort of corralled everything and and made it palatable, but they certainly weren't fun. I have seen that change, though. Mm -hmm. Um, As the years have gone by, and I'm still involved with this, we're getting a lot more playwrights that are bringing plays that are very female-centric. Um, And these females are not just, you know, smart, virtuous, they're just as flawed, and therefore interesting as the men. Um, So I'm hoping that we're going to see more of the sidekick characters that are normally put off to the side. I'm hoping that we'll see more of a spotlight on that because it, the audiences are seeing that these characters can be just as fun and engaging as the leads. Mm. So I, I'm hoping that that's changing. It seems to be. I guess we'll we'll just have to see how far it keeps going.
0: But I think part of part of what we what we do, as uh, for those of us who who write is we see something in the world that we don't like or we have an experience that we didn't enjoy and then we take writing as our form of therapy and we make it right and we have added that small amount of diversity into the world by creating the world that we have as we would like to see it so we have created a play where women don't do the don't do the expected or Women and men don't behave in a certain way, or relationships aren't done the way society believes they should be. And when you're kind of looking at that one play, either on your computer or in your hands, that's our input into di- to diversifying the world as we see it. Karen, what's your can I get your final thought on this before you move on?
4: I appreciate what you've done in giving me a platform. Um, I can't tell you how important
0: that is, and that is, that is the solution. Okay, Uh, Jake, with the ever increasing popularity of multi-sensory theatre, do you think the style of, and I'm using air quotes even if people can't see me, sit and watch
3: theatre we've known for many years can still thrive? I would say whilst multi-sensory theatre is gaining popularity, the traditional sit and watch theatre can still thrive. People have diverse preferences when it comes to entertainment mm. and traditional sit-and-watch theatre does provide a different experience which allows audiences to focus solely on a show and the individual performances of each performer without a distraction. Mm. Some forms of theatre rely heavily on the power of storytelling, for example, a one-person show, and that doesn't really need like elaborate sensory experiences to do that some mm. productions do combine elements of both multi-sensory and traditional sit and watch theater for example pantomime here in england and mm. some puppet shows like punch and judy have the kids shouting out and yeah and
4: um,
3: that offers a, a hybrid experience that caters to many different tastes so in a sense multi-sensory theater and sit and watch theater can combine and can thrive whatever the weather really yeah no
0: absolutely I see it's, it's it's easy to think of one as a an old and one as the new but as you said there are multiple cases where the old and the new combine to create something that we've had I say you mentioned pantomime we've had in the UK for many 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 years I also think of
4: something one of my uh, professors said. I asked him why in a two-hour play, uh, there's an intermission at the first hour and you can go to a two-hour movie and there's no intermission.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: And And he got really upset and he looked at me like I was an idiot. And he said, because a live theater audience is working. So when you say sit in, and, and that is true, and you'll see an audience start to get squirrely. They are working. They do need a break in a way that movie theater audience doesn't. But I do think that um, the sit and watch people are often profoundly engaged because they are having to imagine that the pillar's a tree or that the chair's a throne. They are working in a way they don't work. They're mm-hmm. not just sitting and watching, they're co-creating, and they're also feeling they're contributing collectively because it's live. They are interacting with each other on all kinds of subtle ways, Mm -hmm. um, smelling each other, hearing each other. So I'm not sure it's as clear cut a distinction. You know, it maybe it would be if it was movie because that really is sit and watch in a lot of ways. Um, So, uh, but that's a real thing. They are tired. So they're doing something. Movie audiences don't get tired after an hour. Mm Theatre audiences really, really do. Mm -hmm. I've thought about that a lot. I think that's, I think I still don't quite understand what a live audience is doing.
2: I took this particular topic uh, more about does, is one gonna take over from another? And I don't know that there's a lot of multi-sensory theatre experiences in Australia, That I, I really feel like we're just still in the sit and watch space um but yes um as Carolyn said we do need that break because we're I'm certainly engaged as an audience member in what's going on on in the stage personally I would like to be up there doing it with them every time I go and see a show so I feel like I'm part of it in that sense my my brain's going but not where it's to the point of say with Um, technology and 3D um, you're actually immersed in it you're not we're not at that level I don't think but what I what I was taking from this is it's going to be dependent on the talent of the creatives Mm. that would actually would things change to be more multi-sensory versus sit and watch I think it's really in the creativity and the evolution of the art form that we've got. And then, I mean, even just the next step, which is the promotion of these different types of theatre. So, I come from a sort of a marketing background, you would say, where it is about that promotion that, you know, what is it that's the latest thing that people want to go and see and why? Because it's being promoted for you to go there. Um, and I guess the the last thing being the audience demand. So what does the audience actually want to do? Do they just want to sit there and watch something or do they want to be immersed in it? And I think there's enough of us out there for everything to fit. You've got, um, if there's different options, people will take up those different options and there's enough
0: of it. That's the thing, you you, all you we have obviously we have five senses i am not suggesting that multi-sensory theater has to include all of those like i'm not quite sure how tasting theater would go if i'm honest
1: (laughs) 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 i've seen uh, a number of stage productions always at a uh, a smaller sort of independent Type of theater, um, which incorporates the concept of the splash zone, uh, and <laughs> yes. usually something where they will warn the audience members ahead of time: if you sit in these rows, you may be drenched in stage blood. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's people flock to those Evil Dead the musical and and <laughs> things like that. Um, and it just makes me wonder if that's a way for an audience member to feel more involvement, even though they're not taking place with the events on stage. There's a sense of involvement because they got drenched in blood.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I find that really interesting that people who would be petrified if you put a script in their hand and had them walk up on stage to read something but they will sit in the front row so that they can partake in, in something like that, like the bloodletting. The one thing I like about multi-sensory theater, uh, uh, if you, if you consider like a video screen, the use of video screens as something along those lines mm-hmm. is I, I think it, it helps to increase the scale of your production in a way. If you have a, a set, a static set of a house, where your drama or comedy takes place, but um, you have uh, events that happen, say, in flashback. Um, a lot of times, that can be suggested with a you know a, a downstage spot and somebody in that spotlight talking. Mm-hmm. Or I've seen theaters make more use of video footage that they then project, which to me, it it just sort of gives a little more bang for your buck. I don't know that it's necessary in all instances, but I've been to plays where uh, you'll see something and then get that extra bit with some clever video production that's been incorporated in. Mm. Um, whether that's going to be more widespread, I don't know, but I don't shy away from it.
2: Mm. We've done some productions with our community theater where for, and again, linking it back to the the autism spectrum where we've had house lights up and the sound um, lowered so that it wasn't as in your face for some people that we would uh, encourage that um, inclusive, performance, so I mean that's some that, of the elements all
3: mixed up in one. We call that relaxed performance here in England, um, for people on the autism spectrum and people with other accessibility needs. Uh, yeah. We have a lot of them where I volunteer, which is called the Lowry in Salford, um, mainly in our Keys Theatre, which is the second biggest theatre in our venue. Um, They're usually children's shows, so Rachel might know of um, Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler, who did uh, The Gruffalo, Mm. um, Tiddler, many other stories. Um, It's mostly Julia Donaldson shows that are um, relaxed performances. Mm. Um, So we've most recently just had a relaxed version of uh, Zog, which is about the orange uh, dragon who can fly but finds it hard to land. and that was really, really beautiful. The children were just glued to it all the way through. It was just one of the most magical things I've ever seen.
0: i say that's the, the wonderful thing about um, the uh, kind of evolution and the change of theatre is that you make small changes and small adjustments and suddenly you're drawing in kids from a very young age. Jake, do you have a final thought on your question?
3: So going back to what I said, I would say that um, sit and watch and multisensory can interact and can thrive, whatever the weather.
0: All right, Melissa, in reference to the revolution of ideas, how much of modern theatre do you think is now dedicated to new ideas and how much of it is conversion productions, for example, the recently announced Devil Wears Prada, the musical?
2: Well... There are a lot of conversion musicals from my research, all of which I love. So I must put that up front. I really do enjoy, um, obviously, our traditional from the bottom-up musical theatre and you've got the likes of Hamilton. Six, the musical, we love Six over here in Australia. (laughs) Absolutely love it. So it's good to see not only the conversion productions happening because i think they come with an audience base that's already known it's a tried and trusted formula from a storyline from something that's already been widely promoted so they they get that up up front but then is it a case of we're just a little bit lazy and we're not open to seeing new things well when you look at the the success of Hamilton and Six, just to name two, mm. you've got to say, well, I think we're open to um, new and exciting musical theatre as well. I think, and it comes back to like what Jake is saying, there is opportunity for everything out there. I've said it before in this um, in these in this discussion. If you've got an audience that wants to see it, if you've got the people that are there to support it, like the the people with the money, they're going to put um, it behind the production teams that wanna spend the energy to put it out there. I think we're just spoilt for choice in one sense. It's about who wants to put what on and how it fits with the particular audience that you're gonna bring to the table. And to me, it's about audience demand. It's about production desire and I actually I don't mind I, I I like to see some of these conversion ones because I think I have it's nostalgia I'm one of those people that would see it just as mm. much as seeing new stuff.
0: Well, so I, 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 I do love quite a few of the conversion productions as well but to me the producing of a conversion from a movie to a musical is the equivalent of putting a really famous actor name right smack in the middle of a movie poster in letters that are like 10 inches tall. Because it's like, oh, I know that name. I'll go and see that because I know that name. Whether the production is of any quality or not is another question altogether. But I do think there is a little bit of danger of getting a bit complacent about, oh, because Meryl Streep did this film and she did fabulously well, the musical is going to be just as good. But then on the on the completely other side of the coin, um obviously Carolyn and John as as writers of plays, how do you guys feel about the whole kind of money making machines that are the conversion musicals versus newer ideas or new ideas sorry
1: well, it it is the the business uh, is about making money for a lot of people and the easiest way to do that is to trade in on nostalgia Mm -hmm. and a huge portion of the population are the ones that are going to respond to nostalgia, which is the same thing with movies. You, you get a lot of complaints about, you're not getting as many, uh, standalone films and indie films because they're not money makers for the the studio. They're Mm -hmm. putting all their eggs in the genre movies that have that built-in audience and that's unfortunately what the producers of a lot of this type of stuff that's their interest they're more about let's trade in on that experience to make money it's an unfortunate uh you know part of the business but that Mm -hmm. seems to be more of what's driving it than any sort of exploration of the ideas
3: yeah we've just had a new work done by the producers of six i went to see recently called lizzie which is about lizzie borden which goes back to carolyn's answer about uh, female violence mm. um and lizzie is one of the most incredible things i've ever ever seen um one of my friends um who's also a podcaster called Manny, she did some of the acting work and rehearsals for it. Mm. And um, that was in a small venue in Manchester called Hope Mill, um, which is an old mill that's been transformed into like a lounge bar and a little tiny studio theatre. And that uses like multi-sensory theatre by putting like hay on the floor to make it like a, a barn type thing. And it's one of the most incredible productions I've I've had the chance to see it's one of the most brilliant things ever
0: but that's the thing with I mean six has its infamy now but you've got to remember six started out life as two students <laughs> it wasn't you know a, a, a big board of producers sat around thinking what's our next money maker it was two students writing this together as as just two friends and I think it's the story behind Six for me if anything is a a great example of what where creativity can take you and how fast it can it can blow up as a as an idea and as a concept so yes Melissa final thought and then we will move on look I think there's a place for
2: everything I do understand the concept of the big business wanting to make more money but there is an appetite for that nostalgia uh, conversion productions and bring on the more creativity such as Six and Hamilton. I say anyone out there with ideas and let's get some more backing for those.
0: Okay. Um, And lastly, John, Uh, in a world where people are often told, "Write what you know, Do you think that creativity and imagination are being stifled in favor of autobiographical productions, or that the serious is being preferred over the silly?
1: (laughs) Well, as a playwright whose output is probably 97% silly um, over the 3% uh, serious that I've done, I. First of all, I I consider this sort of a a two-part question. So I want to talk about the first part, the write what you know. Um, Funny enough, when I first got into writing short plays, um, it turned out I was writing a lot of uh, silly white men because I'm a silly white man and that's the world I knew. Um, And after one reading of a piece, um, a woman came up to me afterwards and said, I like your play, but I hate your women. Mm -hmm. And I asked her about why. And she said, you really don't have and and she was saying it in a not in a, a mean-spirited way she was saying it as you really don't understand the voice of your women characters and i realized i was doing what i talked about before my women were usually the the prize or the you know the thing that was being desired by the the silly guys in my silly plays mm. And I took that to heart and I made uh, a serious attempt over a number of plays to put women characters, um, as the driving force in the plays. And some of the things that I'm proudest of are, uh, some of my plays where there are no men in it. Um, and it is the women that are driving it. And I, and, I. according to what I've heard from feedback-wise, um, it has uh, turned out well for me, um, even though, you know, being a man, I uh, shouldn't really be able to, uh, you know, if people are told, write what you know, I shouldn't be able to do that. But I felt some level of success with that. Mm. But I do run into that when writing minorities or people of different sexual persuasions or people of different religious persuasions. But I put them in there and and I know it's a process that, you know, my earlier efforts are much more ham-fisted than later efforts. I think you learn empathy and you learn Uh, how to see from another perspective by having those characters in your plays. If I'm just going to write someone whose perspective I know, then I'm not going to grow as a writer. So I like to think that um, writing what you know is not the way to go. As far as the second uh, part of the question Is there a preference to the serious over the silly? I will say that, and and you very nicely said that I've had uh, a lot of productions. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm sending out plays all the time. So just from a a percentage point of view, some are going to get done. But what I've noticed is um, so many of my plays, are based on silly premises or whatever, because that's what I like to write. Mm-hmm. I noticed that a lot of places reject my stuff. And, you know, that's part of the game. You, you know, you don't get mad about that. It's just that there are places that do my stuff and places that haven't. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed is that a lot of times, if, if say, um, I find out the, the, Uh, plays that are being done for a place that I was rejected I might look at some of those plays and one thing I've noticed is that a lot of the plays that are chosen have uh, you know a lot of them have like an inner strength to them they say something about the human condition Hmm. which I think this is what Theater wants to do in a lot of places. They don't want to just entertain you. They want to say something, have some substance to it. Mm. Um, whereas I write about things like, you know, Tarzan at a dating service. So <laughs> I understand why a lot of my stuff doesn't get done, but then again, some of it does, so I can't complain. But uh uh I I don't know if it's a, a preference. For the serious over the silly, I think it's more a preference of the plays of substance over the silly. So that would be my take on that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I do. I do. um, I do agree. I say I'm the, the opposite of you. The play of mine that's had the most success has been one that's uh, very, very dark at its core. But I will always go out of my way to write the opposite of what I know. I've written, I've written women who've, you know, I've written women who've killed people. I've written women who've had had amazingly exotic lives through either research or speaking to people who've kind of had similar experiences.
4: Toni Morrison and Nikki Giovanni both taught writers and they were encouraging people to do not write what you know, write all kinds of stuff. And I think it's about what I do if I'm writing a character of color. Is in, in my introduction, I really do. I do bring the receipts. I, you know, if I have spent years researching in specific areas that I've researched, I want them to know I didn't like just suddenly, um, you know, do that. And I had a play, I was in talks with a very famous African-American Tony Award-winning actress for a couple of, years, well, 18 months, um, and and people have told me I had no business writing this play. So I can choose between that and this one who is iconic in the civil rights movement, as well as on Broadway, as well as in Hollywood. And I feel as an autistic person, these kinds of things are confusing for me a lot because they rely on social cues. But um, I think we're living in a time where that's just bullshit. A lot of it's bullshit. Um, the There's plenty of people of color who can write terrible plays. And there's other people, yes, I think you're highly at risk of colonizing the narrative. That's why you do so much work if you're undertaking to do that. And I really appreciate what John said. Somebody pointed out his women didn't speak with a true voice and he got right on it. Um, and I just think in um, that particular play features a 59-year-old African-American woman who's one of the power, most powerful figures in African-American theater history, front and center. And of course, I'm saying this as a white woman, but it's It's very much on my mind because as John said, I I could hardly write about anything if I wrote what I knew, you know, what uh, my actual experience was. I think it's a terribly important conversation and I really dislike this blanket. How dare you write somebody outside your age demographic, outside of your ethnic background, outside of your sexual orientation. One of the greatest, most radical lesbian plays in theater history was written by a Jewish man and, it went to Broadway in 1920. As far as I'm concerned, nothing has been seen like it since.
1: Um, it it doesn't make sense for people to only write what they know if, if they want to grow. Mm-hmm. Because writing outside your jurisdiction, basically, is a, a real way to learn how to empathize with people who are not you.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: And and yes, you, you, you have to do the work and the research and, and you have to stumble. There are going to be things you write that are not going to work, but that's going to teach you. You know, you're going to learn like, well, that didn't work. Why didn't it work? You're going to look into why it didn't work. And then you're going to start to again, you're going to start to empathize and learn how to write those parts
0: it's just hard it's a hard conversation it comes back to a society that overuses the word can't you you can't do this And you can't do that and you can't write this and you can't write that and at some point you have to turn around and tell them and ask the person who's telling you you can't why because sometimes yes the argument is entirely entirely valid you 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 can't we can't produce this play because you've not done the research, or because this is inaccurate. And I think when it comes to writing outside of, you know, again, what you know, or a fictional situation that you have created. So as John said, with Tarzan in the on a on a dating site, that's not real. Tarzan has never joined Match.com that we are aware of. So John is entirely at his liberty to create that scene in any way he wishes to. However. If you are writing situations and people that you know exist, there should be the same level of research and question in my mind that you would put into if you're writing a play about an event in history. Because then even if people do turn around to you and say, you can't write this because of so-and-so, you go, well, I can, and I did, and I did the research. And if you don't like it, that's your prerogative. But don't tell me I can't do it because we we all have the same rights to explore creativity as we see fit and,
2: and that you don't
0: way, go out of your way to intentionally offend and upset people live and let live that is my perspective on the situation
2: <laughs> my two cents worth is that
0: you know, this is
2: the creative arts. This is where uh, if you take it right back to that and not worry about what other people think, and I know that's easy for me to say because I'm in the voluntary space of creative arts. I'm not doing this as a living. But, you know, if I look at it just purely for that, it's people being creative. Um, There's people in history that have used pseudonyms to be something that they're not to put out their artwork. Um, so, as you say, just say you can't do it, it's, yes, it can be done and it will be done by people regardless if whether or not you say you shouldn't. But at the moment in society, it's like you can't do it. And that just does not seem right in the creative arts. Mm-hmm. That's my two cents. Mm-hmm.
3: I really definitely now need to see Taz and JoinsMux.com. <laughs>
0: You have a request for your play, John. Um, but it's I mean, there have been shows that have been produced that I've been to see and thought I'm not entirely sure this is a good idea. I saw Jerry Springer at the opera many years ago. Yes, so, so
2: did I in the UK. And, <laughs> and he actually just played one of his songs on the radio, the only one that You could can be actually played. play. <laughs> and, Ladies and,
0: and gentlemen and and some and somebody at some point and probably several people have said will have said you can't write that or you can't produce that and they can just because you <laughs> don't think they should doesn't mean as a piece it shouldn't exist eh? john final thought
1: um I, I think uh writing what you know is the kiss of death for a writer because you're not going to grow. And as far as uh, a preference from the serious to the silly, um, there are a lot of writers out there that know how to do the serious and the plays of substance far better than I do. So I'm willing to work in that area over there on the silly. (laughs) So I'll stick with
0: that. Okay. Uh, last question: If you could no longer be involved in the arts, what would you do? And we'll start with Carolyn.
4: Um, I live um, right next to a national park, and I would hike, and I think I would try to be an official appreciator. Jake,
3: I would be the leader of a new political party that deal with a side of common sense. I like it.
4: (laughs) Melissa.
2: Well, I don't, as I said before, I'm in the voluntary space for um, the arts. So for me, it's always an option, you know, front of house to backstage to up on stage to lighting. So, so literally there's, anything that you can do. you just got to decide which one you want to do it. John.
1: Well, the the good thing about the arts is it's not something that you necessarily have to take your briefcase, put on your suit, go down to a building and clock in and work your eight hours on it. Uh, If I couldn't be involved in theater, I can always grab a, a pad and a pencil and and doodle. So yeah, I I think the the great thing about the arts is you can be creative on your own. Um, you don't. It's it's not a uh, uh, a discipline that requires you to do anything more than use your imagination.
3: Yeah,
0: absolutely okay we are just about out of time guys thank you so much for joining me and having some very interesting conversations
4: yes thank you
0: thank
2: you for having thank us you. yeah thank you so much for including me on the other end of the world
1: <laughs> and it's nice to meet you all
0: yes and that is all we have time for for this episode of The Panel Presents. Thank you so much to my four panellists, Carolyn, Jake, John and Melissa for your interesting chat on these various questions today. In the meantime, I hope you'll be able to join us on the 12th of November where we'll have our next episode of Theatrical shenanigans with the play Birthrights and Wrongs by Marjo O'Neill Butler and I'll be having a chat to the host of the fabulous Tiny Theatre. In the meantime, though, I've been Rachel Feeney-Williams. This is Theatrical Shenanigans bringing down the curtain and saying, I hope you can join us next time. Theatrical Shenanigans, part of an RFW scripts production found on Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean, and anywhere else you can find your podcasts. Music is written and produced by Chris Cody.